everybody, it's me, your ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and you're listening to another episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. Uh, before we introduce our exciting topic for this episode, allow me to introduce the fantastic filmmaker and friend, Michael Verratti. Hi, Peaches. Hi, Michael. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. I cannot wait to dig into this week's topic. What is this week's topic? Well, this week we are exploring a world of toxic mutants, punk rock cretins, and the chicken dead as we delve into the world of trauma entertainment. I think that anybody who... Uh, explores the annals of cult cinema eventually runs up against Troma because in many ways, uh, Troma is one of the only studios that is dedicated to making cult cinema and somehow does it. Yeah, that's the thing. Like They have done that thing where people all the time, I think, set out to make quote-unquote cult movies. And the fact of the matter is you can't really set out to make a cult movie. A cult movie is either uh, embraced by a community and therefore given cult status, or it's not. You know, you know. so it's the cult that decides whether or not you've made a cult movie. Uh, but consistently, this studio has churned out movie after movie after movie with a cult following to the point where the studio itself has a huge cult following, you know, just the brand trauma itself, which I don't think anyone else out there really has. I mean, certainly there are filmmakers like uh, John Waters or, you know, Almodovar or, you know, David Lynch who have cult followings, but trauma, the studio, the entity, the group itself has a cult following. And what I really uh, think is fascinating is that through that cult following and through the curation of the kind of movies that they make, They've in many ways established their own style. You know, you mentioned John Waters, and I think it's really key when we talk about how most people can't set out to make a cult film. Most people also can't purposely make camp. Camp often happens on accident. But I think John Waters is the rare, uh, you know, exemption of someone who is able to knowingly do camp because John understands it so well. And in a very, very different way, Troma can knowingly make camp because Troma knows what it takes to make Troma's brand of camp. And Troma, as a film studio, has made a lot of movies in-house, like The Toxic Avenger, Class of Nukem High, Sergeant Kabuki Man, NYPD. And then as distributors, they have uh, really gone out and acquired a lot of films that have been made by regional filmmakers and indie filmmakers. And I'm sure at the beginning, there was a little bit more of a wider uh, breadth of what that meant. But then I think when when young filmmakers who were raised on a generation of that started making their own movies, knowing that they were making a trauma movie, it started to affect a trauma style, even if it wasn't made in-house. And right. that's so fascinating to me. Absolutely. And uh, the, the other really notable thing about trauma is that regardless of the style of film they've made, exploitation, cult movies, you know, gore films, uh, comedies that that is clearly their style but but regardless of that they are the longest running independent uh studio um as far as a a a working studio they've been around since 1974 which means that that organization is as old as i am (laughs) (laughs) we were born the same year and you know it's lloyd kaufman and michael hearse who, you know, came together in 1974 and really started out very punk rock because 
in, in many ways, they what's interesting about them is they started punk rock at a time when people were being punk rock. They were being independent. You could go and broker a deal with a movie theater chain. You, you could actually make a movie, believe it or not, outside of the studio system and, uh, and make it work. What is fascinating to me about trauma is when that model completely changed and nobody could do anything out of the studios, outside of the studio system and not play the games of, you know, the film festival, and the markets and, you know, really uh, uh, do all the things that you had to do, even if you were quote unquote independent cinema. They all played the game, not trauma. They, they have stayed fiercely independent in a way that I don't think any other company has. I don't think you can point to any other company that's done it quite like trauma has. And in that way, they are they truly are punk rock. They, uh, you know, really Michael and Lloyd are uh, completely, um, how should I say it? Like heroes, like indie, yeah. indie film heroes in many ways because of what they've done. And what I think is really cool and something that maybe not a lot of people realize is if you go back and look at their history, they're not people who seem like they would be likely punk rock heroes. You know, right. both, both Lloyd and Michael met as business majors at Yale. They were <laughs> they were fellow students with Oliver Stone. Like, you know, there was this sort of Ivy League prestige and like their classmates went on to make, you know, the air quotes, serious cinema and all of this. And, uh, you know, Lloyd Lloyd himself as a producer and uh, and so he had worked with John G. Avildsen on Rocky. He worked on The Final Countdown. But then he was also writing these sort of sexploitation movies like Sugar Cookies and The Battle of Love's Return. And the first movies that Troma started making were kind of these slapstick sex comedies. And so to know that these two dudes from Yale started off with these movies like Squeeze Play and Waitress! Exclamation <laughs> point, uh, and then realized, well, amidst the sex and the kind of Dadaist punk rock uh, you know, imagery, we can also say something. And then from that, mm -hmm. Toxic Avenger as a commentary on... Uh, you know, the environment and, and how we're treating the environment is born. And Newcomb High speaks to that. And, and uh, what I love is when you look at the, the history of trauma for as wild and crazy as they are, their movies are always about something. And I think that's also what set them, sets them apart. Like most people hear the title Poultry Geist, Night of the Chicken Dead, and know it's a movie about fast food chickens that are killing people. But not everybody knows that uh, at one point MSNBC had listed it as one of the top 10 greatest civil rights movies of all time because it's one of the few movies that took into account the rights of animals. And so it's sort of like, how does that wacky movie also say something? Well, when it comes to trauma, they somehow managed to do it. Which is, again, it's another reason I just love trauma so much. I actually really love Poultrygeist. I remember when <laughs> um, when I heard that they were doing Poultrygeist, I was a little bit worried because Poltergeist is, oh my God, you know this. It's like one of my favorite, favorite, favorite films. It has a, a really special place in my heart. And so I thought, oh God, I love trauma too, but trauma just rips things to shreds and they make fun of everything. And what, what's great about Poltergeist is it's, it is its own movie. It's not a parody of Poltergeist. It's its own, right. it's its own um, film. And yeah, the fact that it is about the, um, 
the horrors of fast food restaurants and capitalism in the United States. It's also about animal rights and the way we um, treat animals that we're going to eat and the horror that lurks beneath. And like you said, Toxic Avenger, Class of Newcomb High, these sorts of um, message films are uh, messages that I agree with. And you could call them progressive, whatever, left. Somehow they managed to do that, make a movie about, you know, these sorts of issues, an issue film that feels still very offensive, very rotten, very, very um, jarring. And they're, you know, unapologetic about, you know, creating content that is also fucked up. And I love that balance of if you really want to know who we are, look at the overall message. Right. Like th th these the, consistently, they these guys have made movies with with a message that I believe in. But if you get hung up on some rotten joke here or there and you want to, you know, cancel trauma or cancel Lloyd Kaufman because of some offensive thing. And Lord knows they have made fun of queer people. They have made fun of drag queens. They have made fun of my people. And I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. You know, and I think that everyone, everyone is fodder for them. You know, they, they'll make fun of anybody. But the messages of their films are actually big messages. They're big statements. They are, and I think that that's it. If you if you uh, are willing to sit back and unpack what they're going for, you know that doesn't mean that maybe the micro messages aren't offensive from time to time. I mean, I Some, I know sometimes they are. They, I, 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 I'm I'm shocked even sometimes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I, as someone who has kind of been along for the ride with the studio at different points in my career. They don't always say things that I agree with, and I'll be the first right. person to be like, I, you know, I love the history, but I don't agree with that. But what I do love is that in a world of uh, concern, they aren't, you know, and, and right. even if it offends me sometimes, I'm just like, you and I come from a place where transgressive art, when utilized correctly, is about something, and you use that transgressive message to push the button of those in power to say something. And sometimes it even pisses your comrades off. Sometimes it pisses you off. But if the mm -hmm. message gets across, then that's the punk rock power of it all. And um, I think I think that that's kind of, in a way, why, why trauma as a brand has endured, because maybe individuals come and go, but the sentiment of, of fighting back is always uh, evergreen. Right, and actually that that is one of the big through lines of all of their movies. So it brings me to um, the question that I must ask, which is, Michael, what's your favorite trauma film? Uh, my favorite trauma film? Well, of course, our very first episode of the podcast addressed uh, you know, our mutual great love of Vegas and space, which I am forever grateful to trauma for distributing a movie populated by drag queens in a time where drag queens were nary to be seen in television and film. And that was very important uh, to know that someone was championing queer cinema when it was, was really not getting championed. But, you know, in the spirit of the episode, I will say that I, uh, I love the Toxic Avenger. I have uh, Toxie <laughs> art in my apartment on the wall. Like, you know, he's one of my favorite superheroes. Uh, and as someone who is in one of the Newcomb High movies, I can't shout out, I can't not shout out the Newcomb High franchise because not only is it, uh, you know, a punk rock classic, but I got to be in one. So like, how cool is that? I'm so fucking jealous of you. <laughs> I really am. I, it's one of those things where I don't get that jealous of, of people. 
especially you. <laughs> but I will say, <laughs> I will say that uh, the fact that you're in a trauma movie and I'm not really makes me green. But um, well, speaking of being green, uh, I, I assume you're going to ask me what my favorite trauma. Yes, film is, I would so love just, to know, Peaches. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is 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 not interesting as this is going to sound it's going to have to be the toxic avenger because it was that film that i i saw when i was a kid at a time where i really needed to see it and it was just brutal and rotten and you know i i related to him you know i mean the fact that he's wearing a tutu you know and and you know it's just so pathetic and it was i'm telling you it was relatable content and then as a monster, uh, you know, the Toxic Avenger is just everything I would want in a monster, you know? Uh, it's a monster that goes after bullies. And, you know, I just, I love the Toxic Avenger. Um, so, and the Toxic Avenger obviously is the cliched answer. It, the, it has co come to be basically synonymous with trauma, right? Like the, the, whole, the whole company kind of um, was built on the success of the Toxic Avenger. So if, if, if New Line Cinema is the house that Freddie built, then Troma is the house that Toxie built. Um, but that being said, I also quite love Tromeo and Juliet and uh, Poultrygeist, you know, as far as choosing some that maybe would be less popular. Right, right. Maybe. Well, and, you know, the, the cultural impact of Toxie cannot, you know, be denied. Not only has the Toxic Avenger been spun into a Saturday morning cartoon, Toxie has had a Broadway or off-Broadway musical created uh, about him with music written by one of the guys from Bon Jovi. And now, thanks to Legendary Pictures, we're getting a big-budget Toxie remake starring Peter Dinklage and Kevin Bacon and Elijah Wood. And this whole just kind of, like, amazing uh, lineup and it's it's proof of the longevity of um of of trauma's impact on culture even if the mainstream media wants to deny it uh and i'm just going to be interested to see that once it, it crosses over into that big screen way if the teeth will still be there luckily today we're going to talk to someone who has some insight on that and that person of course the only person that you really can talk to about these matters is Lloyd Kaufman himself, and he's joining us in just a bit, and I, uh, I really can't wait. Well, let's get into it. So I think uh, Michael and I can uh, uh, both agree on the fact that this is for sure one of the most legendary guests we've had the pleasure of interviewing, and boy, does he deliver. So uh, <laughs> we, uh, we are really excited to introduce uh, the legend himself, the director the producer, the founder of Troma, it's Lloyd Kaufman. Josh, what a surprise. I had no idea you were uh, uh, watching me uh, just destroy this instrument. <laughs> well, that was lovely. I think you were the first guest on Midnight Mass 
to not only bring an instrument, but perform a clarinet solo. For listeners who know that voice, you of course know that we are talking to director, filmmaker, producer, author, co-founder of Troma Entertainment, and the creator of Toxic Avenger, as well as jazz clarinetist himself, <laughs> Lloyd Kaufman. Lloyd, welcome to the show. Yay, what an honor to be here with you and Josh, and thank you for uh, enjoying Troma Entertainment. Well, I think, you know, one of the great things about Troma is it's 47 years now of independent cinema. I, I always say that Troma, in many ways, is, is one of the last bastions of, of punk rock filmmaking. And, uh, but there's, there's a Dadaist approach. There's a DIY approach. There's just sort of this really great democratization of, of what you do. And um, just looking back over almost five decades, can you believe that this has all you know, been going on this long. When you started Troma, did you expect almost 50 years later to still be talking about it? Uh, no, when we, when we started Troma, we, we, uh, we organized it very hastily because we had made three films, all of which uh, had lost money due mainly to thievery and incompetence with other distributors. <laughs> so uh, when we made Squeeze Play, which was a women's uh, liberation movie, uh, that one, uh, we decided we would try to distribute ourselves, and we needed to form a, com a, a, a company real fast. So uh, Michael Hers made up a horrible-sounding name because it could get approved by the uh, Secretary of State in New York State. Uh, most names, Michael Verardi, would already be taken probably by somebody in New York. You know, the, you have to come up with a pretty disgusting name these days to get incorporated. Everything's taken. And we got, you know, so here it is, 48, you know, we didn't expect 48 years of trauma, I'll tell you that. But I'll tell you, when, every time we make a movie, I, I believe in that movie, 100%. I think that uh, hashtag Shakespeare's shitstorm is a very worthy film. And uh, also uh, this, uh, the final beginning, which is uh, Slashening Part 2, which uh, Brandon Bassam just uh, uh, finished. Well, we just opened it in New York City where it was held over. But uh, he spent five years making that movie, and and the and the effing and uh, can you say f on uh, your podcast? You can no. say whatever word you oh, want, okay. Lloyd. Well, the uh, the uh, New York Nazi Times uh, won't even review it. They won't even they don't, we don't exist. It's uh, like Russia, where they take your passport away. The guy spends five. First of all, he wrote hashtag Shakespeare's shitstorm. I've been making movies for fifty years with uh, some amazing people like uh, Tiffany Shepis. You ought to get her on this show. You know, I think That's we might. Oh, good, yeah. good, good. She, she uh, you know, you have to get her before, uh, you know, she starts, uh, uh -huh, you know, all that stuff. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm joking. She's straight edge. She's straight edge. And she's the, the best. And I knew that, you know, she told me that she uh, was. In fact, I'm trying now to get her into uh, her and Mark Torgo and uh, some of the other trauma uh, underground stars. I'm trying to get them all into the big... Uh, Toxic Avenger, cabillion uh, dollar uh, reimagining, and I've been lobbying very hard uh, uh, with Legendary. So maybe we'll get to see them uh, somehow. I hope so. Yeah, fingers crossed. That would be you know, that would be a really great marriage. You know, I think anytime we 
have this sort of relationship with someone that we love. And I have to say, I love you and I love what you've done because as a young kid seeing your movies, it gave me hope. You know, it was like discovering trauma, discovering, you know, horror movies in general, but specifically trauma and John Waters films um, really showed me that there were people out there who had a sick, twisted sense of humor. Um, and, I, and I watched, you know, those videos over and over again. And so we've grown up um, in the cult of trauma, you know, which where, where you are the cult leader, obviously. Your your words are better than an Oscar. You know, you can buy an Oscar, right? <laughs> uh, Harvey Weinstein, the god of the god of uh, Sundance Film Festival and Cannes Film Festival, right? They used to lick his ass. Everybody, all the big heads of Sundance. Uh, uh, Harvey's up yeah. on the hill. Oh, we got to go see Harvey, right? That's what they love. And he he was excellent at buying Oscars with a. Uh, you know, trade ads, spending yeah. thousands and probably millions to buy. You can't buy hashtag truth and love, right? You can't buy what that's true. Bush just yeah. said. You can't. It's a. Uh, it's impossible. And I was, And that's what life is all about. I have a wife for forty-eight years too, uh, and uh, she's a saint. Uh, we've been locked up together, yeah. and uh, she's assumed the identity of a praying mantis and tried to eat me a few times, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, but she's the best. Yeah, this cult that you have led for all these years, you know, is finally getting to see this moment um, where despite the fact that you have done, you're the longest running independent, you know, uh, production company uh, in North America, if not the world, maybe, right? And you um, have been able to keep going keep chugging along. You said the trauma staff is back at work. You know, you still have a small team. You've stuck around. And one of the things that I think we love us cult members is that you have kind of given your middle finger, you know, to the establishment, the Harvey Weinsteins, also the distributors, the theater chains, you know, the, the, and, and really showcased and pulled the veil back on what's essentially a, a bullshit system. Um, you know, as far as who, who can see movies, uh, and who can't because if you don't have the money and you're not you know going through the distributors or you're not part of a system you don't get reviewed by the new york times um and i love that today right now you're still giving your middle finger to you know the new york nazi times or whoever <laughs> a lot of good it's done me too it's uh, probably not the best strategy if i want them to pay attention to us but really i've been doing this for 50 years in new york city we own a building in New York. We, we've paid our staff, a, a small one, throughout the epidemic or the pandemic. Uh, we've made how many movies? Uh, probably two or 300 movies in New York. I've directed 30 or 40 of them. Uh, what more? And I've written seven books. What more does the New York Times want? Uh, the only thing that uh, they're interested in is advertising, as far as I can see. And a bit of woke. Uh, they like, they, they're into the woke stuff. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I guess I'm not into that. <laughs> <laughs> do you suppose that the, the resistance of uh, what we'll call, I guess, mainstream media and major media conglomerates to embrace sort of the art that you champion has to do with the fact that you are willing to peel, pull back that veil and and kind of look at the holes in the system? Is it, do you think it is because they don't like that someone's pointing out that you know beneath the, the golden calf there's a rotting carcass is that well there is there is a rotting carcass when you said essentially i was going to said the uh, about the movie industry i was going to say it's a more uh, stenchily than essentially 
uh, of, of an industry. <laughs> but uh, you're, you're correct. Uh, they, uh, it's more that they're so slick. You know, they 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 blow with the wind. And the and uh, Samuel Fuller told me every every uh, problem can be uh, broken down to money or uh, sex. And and in the times they need advertising, they almost went bankrupt because uh, people uh, don't advertise. Nobody reads the newspaper. And uh, now they now they've sort of come back with their uh, uh, the website, and they're you know they're making. I think they're doing all right now. But the problem is uh, they missed the boat. You know they they panned Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King made one of the greatest speeches of all time uh, after his Washington speech. After I Have a Dream, he made a a, a really courageous speech at uh, Riverside Church in New York City, uh, where he made the point that. The Vietnam War was a way to uh, annihilate the black, young black men uh, uh, generation. Uh, now we do it with prisons. Now we've uh, uh, warehoused so many of the black population, 21-year-old uh, uh, men, in prison. But shipping them off to Vietnam and getting their asses shot off, uh, that was the system. And Martin Luther King called us on it. And New York Times castigated him on it. They also uh, wouldn't, didn't want the uh, Jews coming in from... Uh, Hitler from the boats. The New York Times was against uh, that, and they're full of shit. Absolutely full of shit. And there's a new regime of. Uh, I mean, they're supposed to review any movie that opens in a movie theater in New York, and uh, you know we've been doing it for 50 years. In the last few years, uh, they don't pay any attention. So uh, they'll be sorry. I'll get them for this. They yeah. I'll get them. <laughs> <laughs> so the, 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 I think one of the things that's uh, interesting about. Trauma and its success is that you, at some point, uh, had to realize that you could, through creating your own cult, continue to um, generate content and get eyes on it because you had built a cult, right? Like you couldn't rely on these other, you know, tools that everyone else relies on the newspaper, the media, the distributors, the exhibitors to, to give you a fair shot, but you still succeeded because you had created a cult of loyal fans. When did you realize that you actually had this cult, that there were these people that were going to follow you and, and fell in love with what you were doing beyond just one movie? Well, um, the, the plan originally was uh, to create a studio. You know, when you're 19, 20, 21, uh, uh, you know, anything's possible. <laughs> People go off to war. Oliver Stone, with whom I grew up, uh, went to in the in infantry to fight the... Uh, the uh, he was full of Asian hate. He was uh, anti-Semitic, all that stuff. Uh, and he came out of it, of course, uh, a new man. He came out of it uh, left-wing and... Uh, Although now he's sucking uh, Putin's dick, uh, but but um, the point is, uh, you know, people go, they, uh, they they when you're that age, you don't fear anything. You know, who knows? Uh, maybe if I was 19, maybe I'd uh, want I would not want to get a vaccine. I don't, I have no idea. But you feel that anything is possible, and that uh, you're feelers. Uh, and I got lucky. I got very lucky because I met both my wife. And Michael Hers uh, got married in 1974. We started Troma in 1974. And um, we've made movies that enough people have shown up, to, uh, uh, at which enough people have shown up and enjoyed. So uh, word of mouth has been good. You can't uh, buy word of mouth. That's the thing, you know. Uh, I hear that uh, Black Widow is, is okay. But uh, if it isn't, uh, they, can't, they can spend $200 million advertising it 
And uh, um, by the way, I, I have my fans say it's quite good. Uh, have you seen it? I don't even know why we're talking. Uh, I about haven't it. yet. Yeah, no. we, yeah, let's forget about it. <laughs> That's Disney. We don't need to promote no Disney. <laughs> they, no, you don't. But they, that, that, that is an interesting thing. We um, have been discussing, obviously, cult movies and different cult movies. And, and in some of them, we, we've discussed this sort of schoolyard uh, phenomenon of where, you know, kids in the 80s, the 70s, whenever they could make a movie popular because they talked about it on the playground with each other. Um, and that now, years later, you know, we've gotten through this period where there was this time in the in the industry where if you threw enough money at the advertising, you could kind of guarantee you were going to get a certain higher level of box office. And I think with social media and people being so well-connected, you know, if that opening weekend doesn't impress those uh, fans, you're, it doesn't matter. Like you say, it doesn't matter how much you spend because the fans will tell each other and they can tell each other instantaneously. You know, they can go home and put on, you know, Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Like, this sucks. Yeah. We don't care that you spent $100 million on it. It bored me or it's well, not good, you know. Things like Ain't It Cool News who uh, uh, mm -hmm. changed uh, movie criticism by having uh, fans uh, sneak into the projection booth at Disney and watch a movie before it comes out and already tell people, hey, this stinks or this is good. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, criticism that I, I have a feeling that, that, that they don't care about the mainstream critics particularly. And I mean, I just read a full-page thing in the New York Times uh, about F9, uh, the car crash thing. You know, I mean, that's not art. I mean, it's maybe entertaining, but this is the number one critic of the New York Times. The whole front page has got this very big print about... Uh, you know, he's he's twisting himself into a pretzel to say something uh, uh, good about it, to say, uh, oh, it's so refreshing <laughs> to be back in the theater and, and see a real movie, and uh, is it a movie, and uh, blah, 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 and the cars, and, you know, I mean, right. you know, that, meanwhile, Brandon Bassam, who wrote hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm, he's the next James Gunn that's going to come out of trauma. Uh, you'd think somebody would be interested. He, he wrote the hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm along with Shakespeare and my help. And Gabe Friedman's help, and uh, and here he spent five years. Uh, I produced his film, uh, uh, the uh, final, the final beginning, slashing part two. Where we we distribute his first one. Second one is much better, but uh, you know, it's, uh, what's he's a young guy. He's talented, and uh, you know, here I am after fifty years. I can't get can't get anybody on the phone. <laughs> so that's kind of a disappointment, right? And and the industry boils down to. Uh, and you see it closer than I do, you have a small number of giant uh, international media conglomerates that uh, um, basically control every market in the world, uh, along with partnerships with certain governments. Uh, our government does nothing to, uh, to help independent uh, filmmakers, um, but um, the, they do help the, uh, the cartel, the monopoly, they help them by uh, the tax laws, right? the tax laws and the regulations don't have any effect on us because we don't make any money. But uh, they, they give tremendous... In, but in Canada, uh, they, they subsidize independent horror films. The guys who made Father's Day for us uh, have been getting two or $300,000 a movie now uh, from the Canadian government. And they, they also get... Uh, we made a movie in Portugal this year called Mutant Blast. Mutant Blast. It's very good. Which is awesome. I really... Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you for watching it. 
It's great. A new director. Again, another new director. But in Portugal, because we shot it in Portugal, in the Portuguese language, which was a brilliant idea. Nobody speaks Portuguese, of course. But we got 15 theaters, <laughs> 15 theaters for that movie in Portugal, got held over uh, uh, at 13 of them. Uh, it would never happen here. We're luck I'm lucky to get the, you know one theater in New York and one in L.A. Uh, uh, maybe we get a night in San Francisco, one night perhaps, uh, uh, you know, at the, at the uh, Castro or something like that, if we're lucky. <laughs> you know, it's a different world. It's well, Lloyd, yeah. we talk about, you know, this sort of, I guess for lack of a better term, stranglehold that mainstream has on the media that is released to the public, especially here in the States and in North America. And one of the great strengths of trauma is its ability to eschew that using the fan base, is what, what Peaches has been talking about. And I mentioned earlier, I used the word, uh, the democratization of the trauma fan base. And something that I have always been impressed with what you do and what Michael does and what you've done with trauma is you uh, engage the fans really like almost at a grassroots level. If you love trauma and you are able to get in touch with Lloyd Kaufman, you may end up working at the booth at the at a horror convention or you will you seek out through your fans uh, where you find the movies, where you find the people who can staff the, and crew the films. When did you decide, because that's a conscious decision, to go to the people and make them part of your world? Because you know as well as I do, especially in Hollywood and certain aspects of the industry, a lot of people like to build that wall and separate sure. and keep yeah. that, that. But that's never been, as long as I've known you, that's not been your way. Like, if you are a trauma fan, you are part of trauma. And what was that conscious decision? <laughs> it, it was from the very beginning. I mean, when we opened Battle of Love's Return in New York before trauma, my Yale friend and I... Uh, uh, and we uh, ran around, uh, it, it was at a very lovely theater, a retrospective theater called The Thalia. And, um, and uh, it, was, uh, 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 it was the only theater where the seats in front were, uh, were higher than the seats in the back, which was quite amusing. But they were, um, they played a lot of art films and, they, and uh, the, the lady liked my movie. So she gave me two weeks and we had a little bit of advertising money, but we ran around in the middle of the night stenciling the sidewalks around the neighborhood of the theater and we put up we glued up uh, posters to uh, shop windows and stuff like that and we got into trouble for that and uh, a cop came along uh, one night and took the stencil and broke it and uh, and after he left we went to the garbage and picked it up and put it back together and kept stenciling so really from the beginning and at the Cannes Film Festival because we didn't have the money to throw big parties and and uh, you know, advertise the way uh, majors do. We created a lot of street theater and had uh, French fans dress up as Toxie and Kabuki Man and and Trometz and you know, we put on street theater and uh, have parades and and uh, the fans like it. Uh, they they have fun. They at the at the conventions. Uh, I I uh, was friends with Stan Lee uh, from the time I was at Yale until um, uh, he died. Uh, probably his uh, longest running uh, friend. And uh, I saw, we wrote some scripts together, but I saw, and he's in about eight of our movies. Uh, and he's a, he, he was a wonderful guy. We dedicated uh, hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm to Stan. Uh, I believe we did. Yes, uh, we did. Uh, and he and uh, Terry Jones from Monty Python and uh, John G. Avelson and my wicked stepmother, who all uh, made a noise like a frog uh, during the year we were shooting uh, <laughs> uh, hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm. 
So, so Stan was always in the trenches. You know, he was always at Comic-Con. He was there with the fans. He, he uh, you know, he didn't have to do any of that either, but he, he liked it. And he, I, I think that he was so beloved in large part because he did treat the fans like family, which he did. And a uh, great guy, wonderful guy. And you, you could feel it. I mean, the fact that he was in our movies. I mean, here's a guy who's, you know, how do you say it? Uh, uh, like Shakespeare's wife, beyond reproach. I mean, he's G-rated, triple A. And uh, here he's in Terra Firmer and, uh, oh no, that's Trey and Matt. No, but he's in he's in uh, Return to Newcomb High and Return to Return to Newcomb High and, and uh, you know, about eight of our movies uh, without any worry of uh, getting into trouble. I can't imagine somebody uh, in, uh, of his stature being willing to uh, be in <laughs> the kind of movies we make. So I learned, I think I, I learned a lot from his example. I mean, it's a real testament to his uh, loyalty to you, obviously, and just his appreciation for what you've done. And even, you know, you, you can see that in his work, there is uh, irreverence, as well, especially when you look at other people who've come out of your um, your machine, your cult family, uh, and the fact that you, you know, Troma, uh, of course, distributed and gave, gave um a real shot at one of our favorite films, Vegas in Space. So, you know, always, you were always recognizing not just the films that you guys were creating uh, inside Trauma, but also giving, um, a, you know, a, a hand to a group of drag performers when no one else was. This is way before RuPaul's Drag Race. This is before drag was popular. It was very still underground and transgressive. And it's because of trauma getting involved that someone like me was able to see it in Maryland growing up as a kid, you know, was able to see it on cable television and rent it from the video store. Uh, and you also, you know, uh, distributed Cannibal, the musical, uh, you know, when no one else would. And Lord, Lord knows uh, the, the creators of that movie uh, went on to become very successful. Uh, Everybody, and to everyone be... rejected. Uh, 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 Vegas in Space was not completed. We uh, we put in the forty or fifty thousand bucks, and oh, right. and Cannibal we helped them finish it. Also, not we didn't have to put much in, but um, we definitely uh, helped them a lot uh, because they couldn't find any uh, decent distributors. Uh, Trey and Matt came to Troma first. We were the first stop on the train. And we told them, hey, we can't give you an advance. We can probably finish your movie and distribute it. But why don't you go to the guys with the money, the big companies? And they're out in L.A. So um, uh, they did, and nobody got it. Nobody understood it. You know, Cannibal, the musical. Blah, blah, blah. It's, it, it's, a, it's funnier than, uh, than the Broadway show, uh, Book of Mormon. I've, I went opening night. Uh, uh, and it's great. Book of Mormon is fan-toxic. But, but uh, yeah. Cannibal's funnier. It, it's a little... You know, uh, it's a little, uh, a little. Uh, how do you call it? Uh, pushing the uh, the uh, envelope a little more. You know, the song yeah. when uh, <laughs> the song about uh, uh, Trey sings. Uh, uh, he feels so loving and wonderful when he's uh, when I'm on top of you, right? And then he pulls back and he's <laughs> on his horse. You know, I mean, it's brilliant. And the uh, <laughs> you know all the, uh, the I mean they're wonderful. Uh, Spadoinkle yeah. song. I mean, it doesn't get any better. And those guys were so young. You couldn't. You would have loved that film, even though it wasn't yeah. finished. You would get it. And the idiots in the right. suits. Nobody got it. And I can't tell you how many meetings I've had with the, 
people in the industry uh, who say, oh, you know, I always loved that film. I wanted to us, I wanted us to acquire it. I really, blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, Weinstein tried to steal it from us. Uh, and Trey and uh. Matt uh, wouldn't, uh, he wanted to do a TV series uh, based on it. And they said, talk to Troma. And my partner won't talk to Weinstein. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> well, good for him. Yeah. I did a budget for Weinstein. Uh, for He made one, he directed a movie. I think it ended up, it was supposed to be called The Cropsy Monster. And I did a budget and some breakdowns and stuff for which they didn't pay me. So uh, Michael never forgave uh, Weinstein for that. <laughs> but I was always friendly. If I passed him in the street, I didn't do this to him, you know. <laughs> Well, I have to ask, Lloyd, you know, we're, we're talking about all of these movies that you've distributed and including some of yours along the way that you, you yourself directed, meeting the studio resistance. And then, of course, hearing the commentary later, like, oh, we always loved that. We would have, yes. the, you know, the shoulda, woulda, couldas sure. when you did. And I remember, and I don't know if you remember this, about, I think it was in 2016 or 2017, I was hosting a queer horror panel at Comic-Con, and you graciously came to watch in the audience. And a, someone in, uh, asked a question about um, making, making genre cinema during the height of Reagan, Reagan's presidency and the AIDS crisis. And you very eloquently, and, and you didn't have to because you were on the panel, you stood up and you talked to us about the resistance that you yourself as a distributor and a filmmaker met during that era to put out any material that flew against kind of the idea of, of picture perfect Reagan America. And when I think of trauma, you know, in addition to all of this sort of punk rock attitude, I think about that, this idea of pushing against and reminding people that, you know, beneath the veneer, there's truth and there's meaning. And that's something you've always fought for, even when the industry doesn't. And so to have these back and forth with an industry that frequently turns its nose up, but then shoulda, woulda, could as you later, is it strange now that you finally, after all these years, Toxie is going to be a big budget Hollywood film? What's that feel like? It's got to be a mixture of emotions. Well, uh, I'll tell you, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Michael Hurst totally disagrees with me. I believe every film that he and I have produced are, are, are true masterpieces. They're entertaining. They have something to say. It's just they, I don't mean to be arrogant, but they're uh, perhaps 35 years ahead of the times. So now, 35 years later, uh, the Toxic Avenger is being recognized as the, uh, the fount from which Deadpool grew. <laughs> Those guys talk about that right. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and you got James Gunn out there and Trey Parker and Eli Roth. And Eli's favorite horror film, by the way, is my brother's movie, uh, Mother's Day, which is, uh, as Michael uh, knows, it's, it's a real, uh, it is a horror masterpiece. Beautifully, my sister was art yeah. director on it. Now, all sorts of little funny little things she stuck in there. Uh, and, uh, but the screenplay is really well done. Things are set up, and later on, the, uh, you know, it's, it, it, my brother has turned to a different profession. He uh, has a very successful uh, artisan bread business. Uh, but uh, Mother's Day, When Nature Calls, Jakarta, uh, wonderful film. He was the most talented, but uh, you know, he couldn't really make a living uh, working for us. And he, he lived in L.A. for 10 years, and he just couldn't uh, uh, talk the talk. And uh, so he went to the bread business, which at least, uh, like horror films, uh, has the uh, knife thing going. So uh, 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's made a lot of money. He's got about 400 people. If you're in San Diego for Comic-Con, uh, we'll go over to Bread and Sea, uh, which is his... Uh, he has a cafe, uh, but uh, his, he has a, a bread factory that uh, makes uh, the best uh, artisan uh, olive loaf, French bread, uh, pastries, a chocolate chip cookie dough, raw chocolate chip cookie dough. You can get all you want there uh, for free. Oh, my God. Really great pastries. Actually, every time I do Comic-Con, oh, right. I stop you and at I were there. on my way out of time. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you were filming Next Door, a music video, and uh, we went in and Charles, uh, Charles was there, I think, wasn't he? Didn't you meet Joe? Yeah, actually, uh, it's funny. Yeah, I did. So um, what Lloyd is referring to is a number of years ago, almost a decade ago now, uh, I was gracious enough to be working on Chad Michaels' one and only music video oh, right. that was shooting at a drag bar right next door to uh, Charles Kaufman's restaurant, Bread and Sea. And I knew Lloyd was next door having lunch uh, with his brother. And I let them know, and Lloyd and Charles and, and Pat, uh, your, your wonderful wife, uh, you all came over, and I got to introduce you all to a bunch of drag queens, and it was it was a really lovely crossing of worlds. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, hopefully my brother shared some of his uh, wonderful bread with uh, with everybody. I don't remember, but I know he always brings a or sends over a shopping bag full of uh, pastries and bread and stuff to our booth at at uh, Comic Con, and and Megan and Marcus and the volunteers who. Uh, don't exactly get uh, much more than pizza for lunch. Uh, uh, love it. <laughs> that's one of the few perks of uh, Chomaville. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the first rules of uh, filmmaking is, and it, it makes sense for a convention as well, is is to always feed your team. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've learned that people will do a lot if they believe in what you're doing, but not if they're hungry. You're right. I learned <laughs> you know. that the hard way too. I learned that the hard yeah. way. On, in fact, on Troma's War, I, 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 uh, they had a, we had a strike on Troma's War because uh, oh wow, the crew wanted they wanted uh, fried chicken, and I said no, we're not, we're not doing that. We're not <laughs> whatever. I don't know. <laughs> and I called. And they said, well, if you don't give it to us, we're going to strike. And uh, and indeed, there was a day, and I called Michael. You know these bastards. He said, "You get them back to work. Give them the fried chicken, or I'll kill you." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was right. And the interesting thing is, the guy uh, who picked up the chicken, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, he had a, he his apparently he was a, I don't know if he was smoking or something, but he his car, he he rolled his car. And there was fried chicken all over the highway. Uh, so, uh, the oh my god! That day. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah. <laughs> that is a scene he, right out of he, one of your movies. I know. He went to the hospital. <laughs> uh, he was not terribly injured, but they uh, they found uh, drugs in the system. So I don't think. Uh, I, I have a feeling the well. I don't think he needed insurance, but uh, I think there may have been a problem there. <laughs> yeah. Well, well I was going to ask. Marijuana is That's true. After how many That's true. young men, uh, put in, uh, black men specifically, have been put in jail for, for 15 years for a few joints. You go to Alabama or Mississippi or New York, and there's uh, yeah. tons of, of, of uh, people of color sitting in the, uh, you know, in their 20s for a couple of joints. Yeah. Now it's all yeah. okay, and Wall Street's investing, and you could be sure Philip Morris is going to take over the independent uh, growers, and... You know, they, they, they delayed as long as they could so they could get in a position to eat, the, to, to gobble up these small independent uh, growers. And, and, of course, the prices will go up, you know, all that kind of horseshit. 
So uh, it's pretty tough. I think uh, Canada has a better system, uh, at least toward marijuana. <laughs> That's all I care about. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thank you, Lloyd. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, thank you. This is the first mass I've ever been to other, uh, also. <laughs> there you go. Of any sort. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Awesome. Thank you, Lloyd. Here's a question that you can't avoid. How many times have they canceled Lloyd? It's true. That was our interview with Lloyd Kaufman. And not only is he this incredible, legendary producer and filmmaker, but also a skilled musician. We didn't know that he was going to play the clarinet for us. No, that was honestly a surprise. And I think probably a first and last year at Midnight Mass. I can't imagine <laughs> anyone else is going to show up with a, uh, you know, a, a improvised jazz number. You well, you, you did tell Lloyd that you also could play the clarinet. So maybe we'll have to um, have you, uh, you know, serenade us one day. Maybe. I would have to find mine. It's probably locked away in a basement where, you know, all of my shame is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I just have to say that I loved that interview because it was so Lloyd from the moment I met him as a fan. Um to the point where he, you know, came to an All About Evil screening. You, I believe you were there as well. He came I was. to um, the screening. And he has been so lovely to me and so generous and so sweet and so supportive, you know, um, and so attentive uh, that I just, I just wanted to kind of give that sort of behind the scenes um, insight into why so many people refer to him as Uncle Lloyd, because even if he's caustic or rotten or says something nasty, the reality of it is this is a very, very sweet man that people just fall in love with, and I'm one of them. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, as we talked about in the intro, the thing about trauma is trauma pushes a lot of buttons. And yeah. if you have been around for the long haul, invariably things are said uh, that maybe you don't always agree with. But I also uh, try and look at actions above words. And as a queer person uh, who has been in, in and out of their orbit, uh, I always felt seen by him. Uh, and, you know, I, like we talked about with Vegas in Space, they also, um, you know, distributed queer movies when, when no one else was doing that. Uh, and Pat herself has always been a huge, huge Vegas in Space fan. Every time I see her, she always asks. She wants to know how Philip and X are because that was like she really loved getting to to go on the the film tour with them. Uh, and yeah, I do think for, for fans of superhero movies, I, I want to offer this anecdote about Pat Kaufman because Pat Kaufman is legendary in her own right and honestly like could have an episode of a show all about her. Um, as the New York Film Commissioner, she, she brought a lot of movies to New York. And one of the most important things that she did uh, was when Hollywood decided in the early thousands that they were going to make a Spider-Man movie. They wanted to make it on the West Coast. And Pat Kaufman said, no, 
Spider-Man's a New Yorker and Spider-Man needs to stay in New York. And she is film commissioner fought to make sure that Spider-Man could stay in New York. And we got those marvelous Sam Raimi movies set against the New York skyline, partially because of Pat Kaufman. And I think that, you know, if you love your Spider-Man and you love your Marvel, you owe a little bit to her. So Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, speaking of that love and that sort of family um, spirit, uh, I think that's a great segue, you know, as far as introducing our next guest. Yes, absolutely. The next person that we're talking to, of course, if you are a, a indebted trauma fan, you know her, you've seen her in movies. Uh, but what is, is great about our next guest is she is not only a trauma superstar, but she's proof of trauma's in inclusion of fandom because she began as a fan. And she has a really amazing origin story of how she started her career in movies by ditching school because she wanted to go be part of this movie of this crazy studio. And that, of course, is the legendary, the iconic, my, one of my dearest friends, Tiffany Shepis. And uh, we're going to talk to her right now. Welcome back, everybody. Of course, you can't have a cult without the community around it. And our next guest knows a thing or two about the dedicated lengths to which fandom will go. A film and TV star known for roles such as Victor Crowley, 12 Monkeys, Tales of Halloween, December, and so many more. She earned her trauma diploma in the trenches working on the independent films of Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hers. She is a horror icon and a dear, dear friend. Please welcome to the show, Tiffany Shepes. Oh my God, how can anyone possibly live up to that? That was so traumarific of you. I am, I am <laughs> missing, the, the, the listeners are missing the face, the Lloyd O face that goes along with that kind of intro. <laughs> but I am so happy to be here and to talk anything and everything cult of trauma. Well, Tiffany, I think, you know, people who have followed your career know that your beginnings were with trauma, but I don't think they, many, not everybody knows how quite indebted you are in terms of like your own dedication to getting in that first movie, which was Tromeo and Juliet, uh, which you, you kind of cheated the system, skipped school, broke the law. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was completely indicative of trauma world like so punk rock to see an ad in a newspaper in manhattan at school sitting there like you know a degenerate trying to like wait for your smoke break right because back then you could smoke at school um and and i'm like whoa trauma trauma oh my god like oh that's the company that makes the toxic avenger and that's the company that makes class in newcomb high like oh my god they're looking for extras and I was like, oh, it's today at two or whatever it was. And I was like, I'm out. And like, I, I ran down there. I'm like, I, I had like modeled and done like some little like off, 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 like far off Broadway, like somewhere in like Long Island plays. Um, and uh, and so I, I grabbed my little headshot and, and this makeshift crappy resume and I ran down there. And the first thing they asked, and it was it, interestingly enough, this is how long ago it was. It wasn't like a cattle call now where you'd have thousands of actors waiting there. I mean, it was maybe, maybe 15 or 20, but I was, it was in awe. I was like, oh my God, these are real actors. Like everyone is beautiful or everyone's interesting or everyone looks like a Cretan. This is awesome. And um, they asked, oh, it says here on your resume, you have special skills. Well, I didn't actually have any special skills, Michael. You guys like no special skills at all. So I was like, <laughs> I know jujitsu and I'm a black belt. 
because I kind of figured they're never going to ask me to prove that. <laughs> well, they did. Um, and uh, I was by far not a, uh, a, a trained black belt, but I was like a street fighting asshole, basically. And so I uh, fake fought an intern and it apparently looked really good. And they were like, we want to give you a part. But fast forward to the problem, there was a whole like release thing and it's like, you know, how you were over 18. I'm like, absolutely, I'm over 18, I'm 22. And so they're like, this is great, we're gonna have somebody send you everything and- But uh, you were actually how old? You were 14? Michael, I am getting to that. Okay. Mr. Verratti. (laughs) So I get home that evening, Peaches, and I am like, Holy crap, I just lied. My big movie break. They are going to blacklist me from Hollywood. I have to call and tell them the truth. Now, mind you, I was 15. But I called and I said, Andrew Weiner, he was the production manager. I'm like, Andrew, I was so excited today when I got offered that part that I forgot how old I was. I know how silly. (laughs) I'm not 22. I'm... 19. (laughs) (laughs) And you should have heard him on the other side, like total nose, I'm full of it. Like, just like, okay, you forgot. I mean, simple mistake. Anyhow, it turned out it didn't matter because it's not like I was doing nudity or anything yet. Um, But but I ended up getting a part of Peter, the bodyguard to the Capulet family. And uh, because of that tiny, tiny little part, where I really just fought in the movie and, and said like two silly lines. Um, the the world of trauma and the the cult of f- trauma and the family of horror fans that go with it embraced me and really gave me my start. Um, and now it's you know a hundred something terrible movies later, and it's uh, due to Uncle Lloyd and his bad decision making. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I think that might be one of the best show business breakthrough stories we've ever heard because you know i think i think when you're a fan of these cult movies to to think that your entrance into the fandom was to actually be in one and then be both a fan and you know because i feel like with trauma especially the fandom is inclusive of the performers the performers are also fans of the content you know because it's so wild and so uh, transgressive and offensive and, you know, all things wonderful in the world of, you know, sure. trash cinema. And I, I think, like, your entrance, you know, as a as a, a 15-year-old, I mean, and you also are really lucky because you, you get to be in one of the, you know, one of the classics. Let's oh. face it. You know, Tromeo and Juliet is a classic. Hands down. I mean, you run into anyone who, if, if you are a fan of trauma, it's it's Tromeo and Juliet, Class of Newcomb High, Toxic Avenger. That's it. Like, it's you know, the holy you, you'll triumvirate. Find the, the stray cards that are like, I love Monster in the Closet or Trauma's War, but it, it's right. it's generally the the trio. And uh, and I felt very lucky. And and it was really just kind of an interesting thing for a kid growing up in New York. And I feel like a lot of kids at that age, you feel like an outcast, you feel like a weirdo, you feel like you don't belong, you're trying to figure out your way in the world. And and trauma just seemed to be this like inclusive place that everybody was welcome. And that's sort of indicative, like if you go to a convention, like you can, if you're a fan, you can walk up and next thing you know, you're working there. Next thing you know, you're you're hanging out at the booth and, and you can be part of that family instantly. And I, I thought that was 
crazy attractive as a young kid who also had never been on a movie set because you're like, whoa, this is what it's like. Not what it's actually like. <laughs> but in trauma world, it was. And um, and to watch like young Lloyd and young James Gunn and all these people, like so many like talented people came out of that movie. Um, yeah, it was, it was just, it was super cool. I was just going to say, it's, I, I'm realizing like you really were, it's, it's like trauma has had this long, incredible history. I mean, and it's still going strong, but that, that period of Tromeo and Juliet is such a great period to land in because they've already enjoyed enough success to be on the map and they're still, you know, at the, the height of innovating and being, you know, bizarre. I mean, of course, I think some great movies came after Tromeo and Juliet, you know, uh, but uh, Tromeo and Juliet, what what a perfect time, you know, to, sure. to, to land in the Troma universe. Well, it's, it's an interesting time, too, because I was sort of there at the time when, like, not Troma, like, of course, Lloyd will tell you Troma was always a household name, but that you would have to kind of convince people and go, no, 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 I know you've heard of this. Or, or you know, come on, the Toxic Avenger, like the dude who's dropping toxic waste. Like, you you were always sort of on this convincing thing. And now you're in a place where you go to a toy store and there's friggin' Toxic Avenger toys, you know? And, and you know, people are making Toxic Avenger shoes. And there's just so much merch and so much love for something. And it's kind of like, Michael and I were talking about this recently, how sort of like every dog has its day and now it's like trauma's time to shine in the mainstream. And it, in a way, like you're so proud of that. And another way you're kind of like, well, fuck you. Like we were there like when <laughs> yeah. no one cared, like, right? where are you now? Like, it's like yeah. when you go to universal and like all these people are like, Oh, all of a sudden they're super fans of horror movies. And you're like, like, remember when like I came to your office and pitched you a horror movie show and you're like, nobody likes horror films, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So that's a little bummer, but um, man, like trauma is just, it's, I, I feel like they were the, because um, even though they, they're extreme and they're in your face and they're offensive, they're, there's also so much crazy social commentary within their films. Like I, I feel like they're like the Aaron Brockovich of indie filmmaking, you know, like <laughs> always trying to, and whether it succeeds or not, like trying to bring social issues like to the front and, and always against the big conglomerates of Hollywood. Um, and I think they've they've generally done a pretty good job of it. Well, I'm I'm really interested in in sort of that experience that Peaches brings up and that you and I in different ways lived with trauma is the idea that the cult is the studio in a lot of ways. Because I think that in this discussion that we've been having over the course of episodes of Midnight Mass and discussing how cult informs the movies or the figures that they rally around, trauma in its way is sort of unique in that what you said, if you show up and you want to be part of the family, Lloyd and Michael open those doors and welcome you in. And for you and James or like Will Keenan or Debbie at that time, Debbie Rashan you kind of were part of a special group who went from into it to the face of it. You know, I, I remember that you were uh, being put on covers of movies that you weren't even in, just modeling, you know. Well, but I think that was just the time. And yeah. it, it was the time also of like the E-Channel Wild and the Riviera was such a big thing. So our group of people like Debbie Rashawn, um, like Will Keen and Trent Haga, like that kind of group of 
like right after Tromeo into Terra Firmer land became, like you said, these faces because of the press they were getting. And they were getting this press because they were wild and crazy and different. And they were like, we're also just going to put ourselves out there like nobody else. And um, I don't know. And somehow people really, really dug it. And I think like conventions help that as well. But it, it has a lot to do with Lloyd and, and even Patty, the way they remember you when they meet you is an art that I've I've still can't master like you know I learned a lot of things from trauma like on on how to lift people up when you meet them and if like you sell fucking hot dogs I'm gonna tell everyone that you sell the best hot dogs I've ever had in my entire life because it's peaches you know what I mean it's like they make yeah. everyone feel so good but they also truly remember you and that's weird and cool and I think you instantly feel like I belong here and I am welcome here. And, um, and you're right. Like that's what makes the cult, right? Is like somebody, somebody bringing you in, somebody feeding you, someone clothing you, letting you stay on, on the floor of their crappy apartment in Sundance. Like that's what makes a family and that's what they are. I, I totally resonate with every single thing you're saying. And I, and I don't have nearly as much experience uh, with the trauma family as, as you and Michael, but the, the few um, interactions, and I've had some, a handful with Lloyd, uh, have been nothing but generous and kind. And he always remembers me. He actually considers me, uh, you know, it, 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 when I haven't heard from him, he'll send me an email or a message about something. He's just, he, and he truly enjoys the weirdos. He yeah. truly... Embrace. He's not this sort of, you know, there's this sort of idea uh, with some people when you work with them and they make crazy stuff and you go, oh, wait, they're not actually into it. They just mm -hmm. can see that there's some, you know, some money to be made here. And so me as a, a drag queen named after Jesus, I've worked with plenty of those people <laughs> who, you know, don't really give a shit about what I do, but think they could maybe make some money. Lloyd is like the real deal. He he loves this stuff, and he's always been. I mean, we 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 do an episode uh, on Midnight Mass uh, of, uh, about the film Vegas in Space, and and it was thanks to Lloyd Kaufman, and, you know, and Marty Sokol that 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 movie got distribution when nobody wanted to distribute a movie starring drag queens, and that's extraordinary. So everything you're saying, Tiffany, is is so uh, it so resonates, and I want to ask because I think um, Michael and I need you to answer as, as an immediate family member of the trauma universe, what are the feelings, you kind of hinted at this, but I, I, I feel like I should ask directly, what are the feelings around the big Hollywood remake coming soon of The Toxic Avenger? Uh, man, I, I am so excited. Hint, 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 I wanna be in it, I wanna be in it, I wanna be in it. Um, <laughs> But uh, you know what it is? It's it's seeing a dream come to life, you know, for for however long. How long have I worked with trauma now? It's like 25 years or longer. I don't know. I don't want to do math right now and like actually age <laughs> myself up. But um, like somewhere around there, you've been hearing Lloyd tell these stories of like, oh, well, Hollywood's going to do the big budget remake. Oh, oh, they're going to do this. Oh, oh, you know, we're, oh, they're going to make the Toxic Avenger into another cartoon series. Oh, oh you know. You hear this for years and then it doesn't happen or something happens with it or somebody pulls the plug. And so to know that we're this close to finally getting that, it, it's, it's exciting. Like Lloyd, Lloyd, Patty, Michael Hurst, like they should have that. And mm -hmm. um, there is that little like 
like broken side to I think all the actors that have worked there before or you know people that have flown through trauma like going like well what like well what about what about us but at the same time you're also just super excited and who knows maybe dude will will throw a bunch of cameos to like me and Michael and Debbie Rashawn and you know people like that <laughs> um and peaches um oh, but I would be uh so flattered that would be so great come on everyone we're gonna channel it right now like big budget remake, big budget remake. yes um I don't know. I think, I think it's cool. Um, I think any, I've never been down on people doing remakes of stuff or anything like that, because I think all it does is, is, is bring new life to the things that we loved before. You know, I, I used to tell this story and, uh, it was about my little sister who's frankly, she's a complete idiot, but, um, she, (laughs) she was like, Oh my God, did you see this movie? It's a Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it's so scary. Ah!" And I was like, Oh, like, and I was like, you know, I know him. Like, I'm talking about Gunner, and, and she's like, kind of looking at me completely blank when she was talking about the remake, which, FYI, I did enjoy and thought was great. Mm-hmm. But was she good. had no idea that there was an original. And to me, that was just like mind blowing. And so, I, but I was like, well, this is a perfect opportunity to like, let's open that door to you. Like, oh, you didn't know this existed. Now you're going to watch it. Now you're going to tell your friends. Now it's going to breathe some new light life back into something that, I mean, Sex Chainsaw Massacre isn't a good example. That probably would have never fizzled away because it's so iconic, but there are plenty of movies that would. So I think, I think it's, it's rad. I think it's great. I, I hope, I mean, I think, was it like Elijah Wood in it now or something? Too? Yeah, yeah, and Kevin Bacon well, and, and Peter Well, Dinklage? I don't know about yeah. Kevin Bacon, but you know Elijah Wood is a huge fan. Like, he's a huge right. horror fan. He's a huge trauma fan. So I, I think that's awesome. Like, if they could fill it with Hollywood A-listers that are actually truly, like, fans of the genre or fans of trauma, it's going to be golden. And I really want them to try to get Madonna back since they turned her down in the original Toxic Adventure. I think <laughs> yeah. it would be amazing. <laughs> Did you know that, Peaches, that Madonna auditioned no. for a trauma movie and they were yes. just like, no, we don't see it. <laughs> They were like, no, we don't think you're very talented. Uh, They're like, or I don't, I don't too know what slutty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> too exploitative. My light, do you see that? Yeah, yeah you're, it's sort of like you're in Poltergeist or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> Poultrygeist, I should say. Oh, wah, uh, yeah. Wah. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, oh, you know what this reminds me of is sort of that time when um, Hairspray had a big musical on Broadway and then they were going to, you know, they did the movie version of the musical and it was going to be John Travolta playing the part that Divine originally played. And, yep. you know, of course, John Waters fans were kind of, you know, up in arms and ready to hate it. And and I will say this, while nothing can compare to the original Hairspray, I think the same will be said of the Toxic Avenger. However, that that Broadway musical, you know, has been performed now in high schools and in places all over the world. And it's been a gateway for people to experience and discover things like pink flamingos. So, you know... Uh, this might be a really nice thing, and I think you're right. It, it'd be so lovely to see Lloyd and Patty have this experience, have this moment where, you know, um, this big movie just gets all these new eyes on this catalog that's so wonderful. Yeah, I, I think it's... 
anytime, I mean, you just want to see them some pay it justice, you know, to, to all the work that they've put into Troma all these years and like all of like the kind of hurdles that you have to go through with keeping any company alive, but keeping something mm-hmm. alive this long, you know, they, they should have this, this and, and I don't mean payday literally as in money, but I mean, they should have this, this moment, you know, this mm-hmm. big movie with big actors and, and like, I hope it has like five sequels, you know, and that they have to do a, a giant budget shitstorm movie where Kevin Bacon gets like, you know, pooped on. That would be crazy. <laughs> uh, well, you know, before we head off, Tiffany, one of the things I want to ask you, because you speak about your origins and how when you are part of the trauma family, it is sort of like a trial by fire, right? You, it, It's film school of a different kind. You learn what to do on a movie set and in a lot of ways you learn what not to do on a movie set. Uh, and from that time and those beginnings of Tromeo and Juliet, as you said yourself, you have gone on to be in 100-plus movies uh, and television. Um, and I'm just curious, going all the way back and looking at what you learned, what have you taken from your time at Troma and carried with you through through your work? <laughs> I say, like, uh, don't date uh, people on the set. Don't <laughs> lie about things. No, um... <laughs> Honestly, there there was it's so interesting because people always like, oh wow, trauma, your first movie, like how was that? It was so professional, it was so legit that as a matter of fact, I felt like a lot of things I did after that were just steps down, oddly. Mm-hmm. Because Lloyd has made so many projects and knows film so well, it it no matter what the content you were making, it seemed so big budget like and and everyone was so proud of everything and he knew exactly what he was doing and obviously so did James um but uh you know I I think the the gift of promotion is the number one thing that uh I was I was taught at trauma and I have carried it through and I used to tell people that even when I booked jobs and they would kind of like scoff at like that's her day rate and I'm like guess what and you also got a promotion team in me because I will talk about it everywhere and I will sing your praises and I will applaud when you walk into the room. And there is there is value to that. Also, to be excited about a lot of things. And I think that, um, you know, with with uh, like when Michael and I hang out like as cynical as we can be as as humans in real life, we are big supporters of cinema and film and people yeah. and artists and I feel like a lot of that was instilled in me with trauma because like I grew up watching these people be that same way and be supportive. And, and it was like, they were so progressive, even though they were making like exploitation type movies, they, they were so forward thinking, like even looking at Lloyd's relationship with Patty and, and how he really is the man behind that woman. Like I, 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 I feel like I, I learned lots like in all of that and I wouldn't even I would keep talking all day and you don't want that but it um there there's uh it really is the film school for all like go there you'll you'll be forced into editing you'll be forced into cleaning a toilet you'll be forced into promotion and uh being on the covers of Nymphoid Barbarian and Dinosaur Hell The, the truth is, Tiffany, I could sit here and listen to you talk all day because <laughs> I love the way you're describing all of this. I think you've completely, perfectly articulated uh, what it would be like to be in this, you know, motley crew of, you know, the trauma family. And it's so lovely. And and I found that the, the most the, the most um, 
fringe people, the, the, the weirdest of the weird, often are the sweetest, most nurturing. You, you can't have a cult, you know, last as long as trauma has and not treat people with respect and, you know, be uh, nurturing. And you in and Lloyd's relationship, I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things where Pat, Patty had a huge career, very, very professional, huge. you know, New York film commissioner, right? It's like, um, you know, I love that Lloyd is so, you know, devoted and dedicated to this very powerful woman. And um, they're, they're amazing. You know, that amazing. dynamic, that dynamic has always been astounding in the way they, they support one another. And, and it's just like indicative of all of the trauma kids, right? It's like they support everybody. It's, um, you know, I remember I, I did a movie and it was played at some little film festival in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky. And Lloyd talked about this movie. And I mean, it was a good movie, mind you. It wasn't a great movie, but he was talking about like, it. Need, I needed to win an Academy Award for my performance in this. And he was so genuine, whether mm -hmm. it was bullshit or not, his delivery was so genuine that it really uplifted me. Like, oh, wow, like I am really proud of this. And, and Uncle Lloyd thought so too. Like, maybe I should continue this career, you know? Like, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think you're right. Like they, they, you can't have a cult and have a bunch of dicks running it. I mean, I guess you kind of feel like Manson or something, but other people <laughs> like you can't, um, you, you gotta have it come from a place of love. And I think that's what trauma is. Yeah. Well, yeah. from Tromaville to our hearts, Tiffany Shepes. Thank you so much for being here and talking with us today and sharing a little bit of your uh, your history and time with this uh, company that is devoted to real independence. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Tiffany. And that, of course, was the iconic Tiffany Shepis. Uh, as you know, we discussed in her intro, you have seen her in Tromeo and Juliet, as well as Victor Crowley, Tales of Halloween, Death Sember. I have had the good fortune of working with her a number of times myself, and uh, and I love Tiffany. And in fact, we connected because of this community of trauma, and we're still making movies together all these years later. And uh, honestly, you know, she was able to speak to that spirit, I think, quite lovingly and well. Who? doesn't love her origin story as far as show business goes. I mean, it is, I just loved her so much. I think that idea, that fantasy, I wanted to do that. I wanted that life of, you know, kind of <laughs> getting getting to run away and be in a movie, you know, um, and, and have my mother's support, you know, to, to, to do that sort of thing. So I love that she's uh, been able to have that life and that she's so... Um, proud to be a part of the trauma family she's really you know people who are a part of this family and definitely see you know uh luke and michael and patty as sort of the you know the the parents in a, in many ways it really is you know when you talk about cult movies there are these cults and how cool is it that there's a cult that makes the movie and then a cult that watches the movie right and sometimes there's overlap yeah i mean and, and it's really sh so true of how the trauma machine has cultivated itself. You know, we talked about this with Lloyd and Tiffany kind of was the living proof of that is this democratization of the fan base to become part of the trauma studio. If you love trauma and you have an ability to go and be there, 
you can work on one of those things. You can be part of that, whether it's working the booth at the convention, if you can act like maybe you end up in a movie, whatever. And a lot of really amazing people have come through the ranks of of Troma Studio. And it's, you know, Tiffany's out there making lots of film and TV, hundreds of credits to her name. James Gunn, you know, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy and Suicide Squad. And if you look, Lloyd Kaufman has a cameo in all of those movies. Matt and Trey, who created South Park. Uh, You know, Will Keenan, who is one of like the foremost digital CEOs in the YouTube like content space. They all started at Troma and it's amazing. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I hadn't really ever thought about sort of and I hope, you know, I hope this is considered flattering, but there is a lot of sort of um, similarities between Roger Corman and Lloyd Kaufman as far as creating this space to make these outrageous movies that are entertainment-based, many have messages, but also creating a space that's become sort of a film school for a lot of people. And when you consider, you know, something like The Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, which which is a huge, massive franchise. I mean, as big as it gets, you know, right. with, with, a, with a theme park attraction at, you know, Disney parks and, you know, just massive. But the director, the creator, is so clear about giving credit to Troma and to Lloyd as far as where he learned to make movies. That that's extraordinary, you know. And and I know that Roger Corman had a very similar kind of system where a lot, well, Ron Howard and a lot of directors came out of Roger Corman's sort of cult exploitation, you know, school for filmmaking. I know that Lloyd and Roger know each other, and I think there's a great affinity between them. Uh, oh, and I've, I've heard them mention each other in interviews. And it is interesting because Lloyd and, and Roger and, you know, William Castle, Ted V. Michaels, mm-hmm. there's sort of a generation of what I kind of think of as the great carnival barkers of genre right. that we don't have so much anymore, you know, uh, or at least that that notion has faded and, and we need people like you, Peaches, you know, <laughs> with the road shows to bring it back because it it's about the movie, yes, but it's also about the pomp and circumstance and the excitement of the movie. You know, the idea of like, oh, not only did we make the Toxic Avenger, but come in and join the join the party, blah, 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 blah. And I I think that no one quite does it like those guys. And that's part, that's due. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah, that that's what contributes to the longevity. Thinking about those guys, and I'm really blessed to have been able to, you know, do shows and meet a lot of these incredible people like Ted Michaels and Herschel Gordon Lewis and, you know, um, these folks. But I often wonder and think like, what would what would it have been like if Russ Meyer were able to have had, you know, 40 years of a studio, you know, like where, where, would, what would, what would we have seen? Yeah. You know, um, we do know what it was like for Russ Meyer to get into a studio and, you know, get beyond the Valley of the Dolls uh, made. But yeah, I just think like there are those filmmakers like Russ Meyer, like, you know, Lloyd Kaufman, Roger Corman, who did things very outside of the box. They did it their way. They created an audience and a, and a certain um, film that was unique to them. And uh, we see that less and less, unfortunately. But, you know, we, we, we hopefully with the, the digital era that's happening, what's interesting is watching young people kind of, you know, say fuck it and make their own stuff and put it online and find their audience that way. You know, I really like this idea of, of what you said about um, Russ Meyer 
Yeah. Even though there is a bittersweet nature to that, right? Like, because we, we think about what could have been. And I think that there is a whole generation of, of filmmakers who are on the precipice of cult, right? You know, the, the system was too buttoned up or too straight-laced. And the ability to reach the people the way that Roger did, the way that Lloyd does, and the way that Herschel and Ted and all of these guys. You know, I think about... Yeah. Someone like Ed Wood is another example. If Ed Wood had gotten a couple extra decades and been able to reach out and touch the people, yeah. you know, in that way, what extra stuff would we have gotten? Right, exactly. And, you know, the other thing, speaking of Ed Wood, that I really would like to see is, you know, I've said it before. We talked about it on the Vegas in Space podcast, but, you know, I believe Tim Burton's best film is Ed Wood. And, you know, I would love to see the Russ Meyer biopic. And I would especially love to see the the trauma story, you know, put to celluloid, you know, with, with the story of Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Herz being told because it's an epic story and it is wild. And, and one, our little podcast here can't even scratch the surface of how extraordinary uh, what Michael and Lloyd has done in terms of filmmaking. It, it, it is extraordinary. And, you know, if you've made a movie, you know how hard it is. And the fact that these guys have done it. And, you know, when Lloyd talks, you know, it is in a way that that filmmakers don't anymore. You know, the fact that he right. called the New York Times Nazis right on our podcast <laughs> was like, right. OK, here we go. We've we really do have Lloyd Kaufman on the podcast because this is a person without a filter who is not afraid to call it like he sees it. And that's just not playing the game, you know, in the industry. Right. Um, meanwhile, not only is he not playing the game, he's ma- married to the former, you know, film commissioner of New York. I fucking love him. It is amazing. <laughs> it is so refreshing. It is so exciting, you know. And I know we've touched on it a few times, but you you, you got to look past what on the surface might be considered, you know, crass or offensive and really look deeper um, at who Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Herz are and, and realize these are good people who are making outrageous films and, and aren't afraid to say things that might get them in trouble, like, you know, calling um, the New York Times Nazis. So it, it, it is, to me, it, it, it is um, a refreshing change from, I think, a world where a lot of people um, the last few years especially have been cautiously tiptoeing around what's okay to say and what's not. And here you've got some folks that have been calling out um, abuses of power for a long time. Right. Sorry to get on my little soapbox. But it's just it's just refreshing and it's exciting. And I think Lloyd Kaufman, for a lot of us, I know you and me uh, and certainly Tiffany uh, and tons of tons of fans out there is a is a great role model and a fun role model and a silly role model. Well, and, you know, as we see, uh, it inspires new generations of artists all the time, whether it's people going out in the backyard with a camera to make their own version of a trauma movie or making art that we see on Instagram or TikTok or whatever. People are still inspired by Toxie and Newcomb High. And, you know, for example, this week's episode, uh, you know, you've probably noticed at this point, listeners, that we like to include a little thematic music every week. And we actually came upon a band called the Vanilla Milkshakes, and they have a song called Trauma. Song and that's been some of our interstitial music yep. uh, this week, and that was based on their love of trauma. And, and, and you know, the song lyrics are hilarious, and I love that yeah. they they specifically say when they call something gay 
that they do mean it in the bad way, you know? So <laughs> I, I actually cracked up when I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that to me kind of sums up trauma, right? Um, so it's, it's just uh, so wonderful. And, you know, uh, this was definitely an umbrella podcast for trauma. It does not mean that we won't do a deeper dive into, you know, Toxy or, you know, poultrygeist in the future. Uh, we love Lloyd. We uh, love Tiffany. And it's been such a pleasure, you know, scratching the surface of the trauma story at Midnight Mass. Um, and we hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're listening to this, you know, you, you just have to be reminded you're all children of the podcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs> <laughs>